Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. We appreciate, once again, your downloading and listening to our podcast. This is George, um, and this week, Patrick and I are going to be talking about some common mistakes that we see endurance athletes make, whether they're new athletes, experienced athletes, whatever it happens to be. Um, and there are certainly mistakes that both Patrick and I have made at, at certain times throughout the course of our career. Uh, if you want to add to the conversation, by all means, check us out on our Facebook page, but also drop us a line, george at itocoaching.com or patrick at itocoaching.com, or you can just send us a general one at the podcast email address. That would be pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. If you didn't watch the Ironman World Championship yesterday from the Big Island, you have about a week to check that out. Some pretty amazing performances there. Last weekend was the Chicago Marathon. Some pretty amazing performances there. And we're going to be talking about each of those big races next week in our news and research podcast. So uh, do make sure that you get those watched and analyzed over the course of the next week so that uh, we won't be spoiling anything for you when you tune in next week. Without further ado, let's get to it. back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel and ITO Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. We are back with you this week and we're doing a, a, a an installment this week, which is something that I've kind of wanted to do for a while, but we had to talk about the way we want to do it and how we want to present it and all that sort of thing. And, and this week, it's our topic week. We're going to be coming to you with the top 10 things that we think are the most common mistakes that we see people make. Um, and we, may, we see people make them whether they're experienced athletes or new athletes or, or whatever. And, and they're the things that, that even athletes that we coach and even athletes we have long conversations with, it seems as if they, they still tend to fall into some, some bad habits here. So we wanted to talk about those and articulate them a little bit this week. Yeah, and, and most of these habits that we, that we talk about, you can see they make sense. And that we, a lot of times yeah. we can understand the logic that leads people to, or runners or, or athletes to make these mistakes. But we need to kind of reframe the discussion to say, here's why maybe it works in, in other situations, maybe other sports, other um, pursuits or goals. But then in, in long distance running or, or triathlon training specifically, it just doesn't work. It's not the right frame of mind or the right kind of framework for approaching training. Yeah, and, and, and I, I'm glad you said that, and I think it's a super important thing to say here right at the outset because we're not trying to say that anybody's stupid, and we're not trying to say that anybody's wrong, and we're not trying to say that, that anybody's I'll, wrong. I'll be hosting that podcast myself, actually, <laughs> yeah. When I'm not here? <laughs> you you raise the IQ too much. Or, or, or Okay, this, this is a different podcast you're going to start on your own. The Least Pleasant Exhaustion, brought to you by Patrick Ollinger. Um, but... Uh, but um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's important to say that there, there are, there are really fast people who, who, who make very common mistakes that, 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 that are things that we see. And, and I think you're right. They do tend to seem, seem, seem to be internally logical. Um, they do seem to make sense. Um, but they, they defy both what conventional wisdom and what exercise science says is, is the best way to go about it. So let's jump right in, man. Are you first or am I first? Uh, I think I'm first on this All right, one. Let's hear it. All right, so the first common mistake, and one we talk about often on this podcast, and it's kind of a general refrain we have, uh, is an athlete running their hard days too easy and their easy days too hard. It is, I know we sound like a broken record, but 
uh, it is vitally important that every athlete kind of approaches every day with a specific purpose. Every training run, every every training ride, every swim with a specific pers- purpose, and they execute that purpose. And so to kind of backtrack too, it, it's understandable why a lot of athletes, you know, want to like, for example, run all of their runs at marathon goal pace. Right. Right. That's kind of intuitive to say, hey, if I want to run seven minute miles for my marathon, I should just practice that one skill or that one pace over and over and over again. Right. Because that's what you do in other sports. Right. Like if you're a pitcher, you practice pitching a baseball over and over and over again. You don't practice shooting a basketball, you know. <laughs> um, but there is. But but the problem is in running, what you're really doing when you're training is you're not trying to train repetitive movements what you're trying to do is you know introduce a stimulus that your body physiologically reacts to which causes you to adapt and improve right you're trying to do things like run at lactate pace at tempo pace to improve your your threshold right you're trying to run at you know vo2 max pace at 5k pace to improve your vo2 max to improve your aerobic power you need to run easy to allow your body and give your body time to improve your aerobic endurance and for example, if you run your easy days too hard, it doesn't allow your body the chance to make the necessary improvements. So that's the biggest thing we see. The biggest one we talk about over and over again is running your hard days too easy and your easy days too hard. And I think a, a lot of an, another reason why a lot of people fall in that trap too, not only does it make intuitive sense to want to only run your goal race pace, but also because quite honestly, it's really hard to run your hard days hard enough. You kind of have to go into a dark place and really push yourself in a way mm-hmm. that's very uncomfortable. Yeah. So then a lot of folks, you know, then end up running their hard days not hard enough. And then their easy days, well, of course it's easy to run. Like, for example, your marathon goal pace for a six-mile easy run after work. You know, that's a, a very different kind of feel to it. So anyways, why don't you jump right in and add on any you know additional perspectives or notes? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that... that these are not our ten. Our ten things here are not in any particular order, but I think it's no surprise that we let off with this one. Um, and the people who listen to the podcast regularly are, are probably like, oh, "I know what number one is going to be." And so this is number one um, in terms of not only our priorities, but also I think what we tend to see the most um, is that people tend to make their hard days too easy and their easy days too hard. I would suggest um, that that if you haven't listened to the podcast that we made several months ago in the early part of 2018 it was about the essential elements of 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 endurance training something along those lines is what it was called we talked about how in both multi-sport and in in running specifically in in all endurance activities you have a wide variety of things that you need to train and for the most part, you don't train all of those things on any one particular day. You use all of them on race day. Um, and if you're going out and you're basically doing your hard days too easy and your easy days too hard, in other words, you're running everything kind of at this sort of center zone three kind of hard but not really hard pace, you're training one system, mm-hmm. one of the five or six things that you need to train in order to be able to, to perform well on race day. You're neglecting the other five things that you need to be, five, four or five things that you need to be training in order to be able to perform well on race day. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, are of the, of the point of view, oh, well, you know, I'm really training, I'm out here and I'm going and I'm pushing. Um, if you're doing that on your easy days, you're not going to be able to run, as you just said, your, your hard days hard enough. And so you're not going to be able to get into those other systems that you need to train on your hard days. What ends up happening too, 
and I know that you've seen this as well, Patrick, is that people will will go too hard on their easy days, and then they will be too tired for their hard days, and so their hard days won't go well, and they'll miss their, their prescribed wattages or paces for their hard days. And then because of that, they'll want to make up for their, their hard days right. on their easy days, and so they'll run their hard days too hard, and then repeat <laughs> yeah you know and 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 that's a recipe for disaster um just this week training peaks put out an article about don't fall into the zone three trap i mean you literally could go um not a single week without seeing some reputable publication say this very thing yeah a- absolutely i mean think about it this way Let, you know you have your different buckets which we talked about before aerobic endurance uh you know lactate threshold aerobic power and running economy if you're always running in that kind of zone three pace, let's say you improve each one by like 1%, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to doing very specific workouts that may improve, you know, a one single bucket by 5 or 6%. I'm just kind of throwing out numbers here. But the point is, when you focus on a given pace and a given distance and really execute that plan, you, the, the gains are much more significant than just a kind of minor, you know, increase in all, in, in, in this, in all the buckets you know, for a given run. Mm-hmm. It doesn't allow you to focus and really make significant improvements in any of the buckets. Yeah, yeah. By, by hitting all of them, you, you hit none of them, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you spread it out. You spread the benefits too thinly. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in the literature, they call this polarized training. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it basically says that, that you have hard days and easy days, the two poles. Um, and, and research has borne out that, that in fact, if you have people that are, that are solely running in the middle and, and not polarizing their training, will they, will they have some improvements? A little bit, um, particularly if they're, if they're new to, to endurance sports, they'll, they'll, they'll receive some benefit. Um, but by far the, the best benefits come from people who are polarizing their training. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So along those same lines, the second one here that we want to talk about, um, is running all your long runs at marathon pace. Um, and this is specific to runners here, and, and it's something that, that, that Patrick actually just talked about a little bit here. Um, and so it's kind of an offshoot here of hard days uh, too easy and easy days too hard. Um, but this is one of those ones that I think probably makes a whole lot of sense to a whole lot of people. Um, and the reasoning tends to go something along the lines of, how am I supposed to run 26.2 miles at eight-minute pace or whatever their goal pace happens to be if all I'm ever doing is going out and run 20 miles at nine-minute pace? Mm -hmm. How can I expect to run 26.2 miles at my marathon pace if I don't go out and do that on on a regular basis? Um, Now, there's there's two... Two big flaws in in that reasoning, from my point of view. Um, the first one is kind of what, what what Patrick just talked about, and what we both just talked about here a little bit. In the hard days too hard, and the or hard days too easy, and easy days too hard. Here, um, I like your be- baseball metaphor. Um, mm-hmm. That that you don't just get good at going at, at running at marathon pace simply by running at marathon pace over and over and over and over and over again. Now, of course, you should do some some long workouts in which you're you're hitting your marathon pace and you're locking in that pace and you're 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 practicing your marathon, if you will. Um, but but you need to make sure that you're training all those other systems and, and to to use on race day. Um, the other thing about it that, that I think a lot of folks don't seem to, to, to clue into, and this is something we're going to circle back around to with, with uh, something else we're going to talk about in a few minutes, is you have to understand how draining that is over time. Yeah. And so if you're going out and running two to three hours at your marathon pace every single weekend, that's breaking you down um, even at a cellular level, at a microscopic level, in a way that you can't see 
such that it's going to ultimately sabotage your training over the medium term and the long term. Um, running marathon pace, if you have a marathon pace, it's it's not an easy pace. Um, it's a brisk pace. It's a difficult pace. Like you just said, you can run it for six miles. Sure, of course you can. Um, uh, but if you're going out and you're running 15 miles, 16 miles, 17 miles at your marathon pace, at your marathon target pace every single week, that's a difficult run, and it's and it's causing damage to your body at a level that you can't sustain over time. And then you can't recover from in a given workout or, or a given recovery period, a given day or two. Right, right. And so what it means is that, that even if you taper, even if you taper well, you're going to show up on the line, on the starting line on race day with more fatigue and more damage than you want to. And I would say that's the best case scenario, and the yeah. more likely scenario is you'll get hurt. Yeah, yeah, um, or that, or that you'll 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 fall apart a month before the race, <laughs> right? You know, and and if not get hurt, you'll have a mental breakdown, and you'll be forced to take a week off, and just all sorts of other things like that, right? Yeah, yeah and, and and to kind of build on that too, you know, the most important thing you can do when training for a marathon is maximize the amount of oxygen your body can transport to your muscles from a physiological perspective, mm-hmm. you know. And as you build, and so what you want to do is you want to build your aerobic base. Um, but those changes, you know, to build your aerobic base, they don't occur at faster paces. So when you're building your aerobic base, what you're doing is you're changing your body's construction from the inside out at the cellular, cellular level, as you mentioned. You're adding mitochondria to your cells. You're adding blood vessels and capillaries so you can get more blood to your muscles. You're adding red blood cells so you can get blood that can carry more oxygen to your muscles. You're increasing the efficiency. Your body moves oxygen from your lungs to your blood to your muscles. Those are changes that don't happen when you move you're, at faster pace. You're, you're, you're gradually conditioning your joints to the pounding that they have to take over the course of a, of a, of a 26.2 mile race. That you too. You, you can't condition your joints and your tendons and your muscles and your ligaments over the course of one hard run. Right. Um, um, nor should you. Um, and so, so, so yeah, it needs to be something that you're doing consistently over time. Uh, and you're not going to be able to do it consistently over time if you're, if you're doing all of it at marathon pace. Now, we, we, we've talked before about people who, who go out and they, and they do all their long runs at marathon pace and they're like, and, and, and they say, oh, well, you know, this is just the pace I run. If that's what you say, if that's the pace at which you run, I would refer you back to common mistake number one that we just said. (laughs) And, and, if you're doing all of your long runs at marathon pace and it is a perfectly comfortable, easy pace for you, you're not running your hard days hard enough and your marathon pace is probably a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. Um, something is off there. Um, if if your goal is to run seven-minute pace for a marathon and and every single run of one of your runs is at seven-minute pace and you cannot go slower, there's something off in your training such that, that, that you really need to look at what you're doing. You should be able to run a faster marathon than what you're running. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. What's next? Uh, here we go. Number three, not training for your target race. Well, that's mine, actually, isn't it? Am I talking about that one, or are you? I think I am. All right, go for it. Um, or it could be that my notes are wrong. Either one. <laughs> uh, and but I hear this constantly. So as we've talked about before, you know, I tend to be focused on, on training runners, and a lot of times when I talk to people who say, okay, you know, I've done triathlons, I've done a half Ironman or Ironman, now I want to train for a marathon a lot i'll ask them okay let's talk about a routine that works for you because that's always where i want to start is let's talk about a routine that works let's identify that first and then we can build from there and i hear constantly folks say well i want to swim two times a week i want to bike two or three times a week because i enjoy biking with people and then i'll run maybe two times a week Mm -hmm. that's not 
training for a marathon. Right. You may run a marathon at the end of the cycle, but that's not training for a marathon. Right. That's training for a triathlon. Right. You know, when you when you're training for for a running event, uh, surprise, you need to run, mm-hmm. and you need to run a lot. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times I see folks, and I, th- I think what happens is. We get just like in a lot of areas of life, we get into habits and we kind of anchor our um, our expectations based on what we've done in the past. When sometimes we need to stop what we're doing and say, "Given this is my goal, what do I need to do to meet that goal?" Or right. "Given this is what the race requires, what do I need to do to build myself to meet those expectations or to meet those requirements?" Right, right. The, the scenario that you just described, I actually wrote about this in a blog that I wrote for, for all three sports a couple of years ago, that, that a lot of times you'll have people who, who uh, will say, yeah, I'm training for a marathon, um, who are multi-sport athletes. I'm training for a marathon. Okay, great. What are you doing? And they'll describe what you just described. And I'm like, well, you're not training for a marathon. You're, 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 you're making a marathon your target race, but that, you're not actually training for a marathon. Or they'll say, I'm going to work on my run over the winter. And so I'm going to run a half marathon in February or March. Great. Fantastic. What are you doing to work on your run? There's nothing they're doing differently. They just changed out their target race. Well, then you're not actually working on your run. You're not actually looking to improve yourself as a runner. You're just switching out your target race here. Right. Um, yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that there's no place inside a marathon training plan for, for cross training. Um, I'm like the king of marathon runners who cross trains. Um, and, and, and so there certainly is a place in it. But you can also arrange your schedule in such a way that all the cross training will will support is actually cross training. It will support your running as opposed to making you simply a stronger cyclist or simply a stronger swimmer. And, um, and the way I approach cross training is we try to run for running specifically is we try to run as much as possible. And then once we can't run anymore, if we've reached all the physiological benefits of running, like mm-hmm. once you're running, you know, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe 10 times a week, then you can say, okay, can I cycle? Can I swim? Right. That right. kind of a thing. Yeah. And then uh, another, or did you or, have another or, point? Or, well, I was, was going to say, it doesn't have to be six, seven, eight, nine times. It could be three or four times. Right. And um, it's like, which, hey, but if you, I do more, I'll be yeah. hurt. Yeah, yeah. Which is what it is in my case is that, that, that. So if, if I'm feeling pretty good and healthy, I can run five times a week. If I try and run more than that here at age 44, I can't quite do that. Right. Um, and so, so right now I'm actually running a little bit less than that because that's just kind of what my body can sustain right now. And so I supplement that with cross training. If I had my druthers, I would run every day, and that's all I would do. Yeah. But I, but I cross train for the purpose of, of supporting my running, not in order to make myself a stronger cyclist or a stronger swimmer or a stronger weightlifter, um, you know. <laughs> Um, you have been hitting the gym hard, I can tell. So, well, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you can't tell too much. Um, <laughs> um, so, and there, there's other kind of implications of this as well to kind of mention. Um, uh, I have found that a lot of people, so so who are multi-sport people or who are runners going into multi-sport, or if they're if they're uh, cyclists who are going into multi-sport, they tend to not swim. Um, they mm-hmm. they they tend to say, "Oh, well, I'm just going to lift weights and not swim." If you're training for a race in which the swim is important, you need to swim. Um, and, and that's something you need to spend a whole lot of time doing. Um, I even see, see multi-sport athletes who, who will sign up for, um, will sign up for, for a race with not a very difficult swim in it. And they'll say, Oh, I don't really need to swim because the swim isn't really all that difficult. Well, you still need to prepare for the swim because you don't want to get out of the swim. If it's an easy swim, take advantage of the fact that it's an easy swim and get out of the swim quickly and without a whole lot of energy expenditure. Like if it's an easy swim and you don't swim, you're going to be spending far more energy than you need to on the swim is the way you should be looking at it. 
Um, and then what happens too is that people end up falling into that habit of being like, oh, well, I don't really need to swim all that much. And then they get into a race like Kona, for example, which has a really difficult swim and, and they get, they get walloped. Um, and I feel like we've maybe picked on triathletes a bit here. So I'll also say too, <laughs> this happens with runners too. Yeah. yeah. They're either going from, Hey, I ran five K's in college. Mm-hmm. Now I'm doing the marathon. So I'll just double the distance on all my workouts. Yeah. That's the wrong answer. Yeah. Um, you can't be doing 40 quarters around the track, for example, or, you know, um, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I also see with marathoners who want to run a 5K. Mm-hmm. It's like, look, your long run doesn't need to be this long, but you really need right. to have an intense right. track workout on Tuesdays. Right. Yeah. They, 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 they train for a 5K by doing a marathon training. Right. Yeah. Which, and again, I actually don't, and I think I've said this to you before, if somebody, if a triathlete says, hey, I'm going to run a marathon, but I'm going to train for it as if I'm a triathlete, I, I, I actually don't have as much of a problem with that. Mm-hmm. What, 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 what we're saying is a mistake is when you actually say, I'm going to train for a marathon – and then you train for a triathlon. Yeah. Um, so the, the the final kind of ripple of this one that I'll mention too is that I have found that both coaches and athletes tend to train or they tend to train their athletes um, for all three sports the way that they would train for the one sport from which they come. So, for example, when a runner decides to sign up for a Ironman, he says, okay, I need to swim. Good. Yes, you do need to swim. You need to get in the get in the pool. Good. Good first step. But what they tend to want to do is they tend to want to get in the pool and just swim long, easy distances, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's what you do in running. And that's good. You should do that in running. Swimming is not the same as running. Um, You shouldn't be swimming really, really, really far in distances. Um, Just easy for for a long time. Go back and listen to the podcast we did with Haley Chura. Um, Listen to how she said that she does 200s and 300s and she never swims over 600 in practice. Um, that's just not something she does that, that she would spend hours upon hours in the pool, but her repeats would always be very short. That's how swimmers train. Mm -hmm. Um, likewise cyclists who come into triathlon, they they tend to want to stack up a bunch of hard days in a row and then take like a week off because that's how cycling works. Right. Swimmers tend to want to not run all that much because they feel like their form starts to break down after 10 miles. It's okay. Some form breakdown is expected in running. Um, whereas in swimming form is everything. Right. Right. And so, 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 yeah. Train for your target race as as opposed to the way that you always have, and 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 maybe necessarily the way that you want to. All right. Uh, my next, my next one. Uh, next one. This is number four. Mm-hmm. Number four. Running too far on your long runs. Um, there is a lot of of conventional wisdom around marathon training. Um, a lot of which focuses on particular length long runs. Um, and and if I'm going to be specific about it, I would say the 20 mile long run. Yeah. Right. A lot of people swear by the 20 mile long run and they believe that they need to, to, to do 20 miles or even multiple 20 mile long runs in order to prepare for a marathon. Um, and that you're not truly marathon training unless you've done a 20 mile long run. Um, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to. Now, if you work up to it gradually, you should and you could. Um, if it gives you a mental benefit, then that's an okay thing. I have an athlete who just this morning wrote me and said, Hey, should I be doing a 20, should I do a 20 miler here? If it's going to provide her a mental benefit, and I know this particular athlete has been running, has done several runs in that neighborhood, then yeah, I'm going to tell her to go ahead and do it. But, but the idea that you have to run a a 20 mile long run and is, is just not, um, is not accurate. Um, what's more, I tend to find that a lot of people who come into marathon training, now we're back to talking about marathoners, I guess, uh, um, tend to say, to say, well, what are you doing? Tell me what you're up to. Well, I'm running three miles on Tuesday. I'm running three miles on Thursday. And then I'm running 17 miles on Sunday. 
Um, that means they're running 23 miles a week, 17 of which is in a single run. That is far too far in a single run. Um, you're much better off keeping that long run at 12 miles and adding an additional one or two days of three-mile runs. Um, you know, Patrick likes to say, add days before mileage, um, yeah. and I think that's accurate. Pretty much any time that you're going, more than 35% is the general rule of thumb. Any time that, that your long run is more than about 35% of your weekly mileage, you really need to think twice about whether that's the thing that you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, ideally, it's about 20%. So that's why I, you know, as you said, I like to say let's add days before we add mileage. And one of the big reasons, too, is, you know, the long run puts on a lot of stress mm-hmm. on a lot of people. Um, when you're running two hours or when you hit that kind of magic two-hour threshold, that's where the injury risk really starts to increase. Yeah. Um, and that's when you start to say, well, I'm really not recovering from this. You know, you're, you don't go for a two-hour long run, go home and cut the grass, so to speak, right? I mean, you're, it takes some time to, to get over. And yeah, you you were saying actually just a few minutes ago that whenever we record a podcast after a long run that's more than two hours, it always takes us longer because we have to sit around longer and recover and drink water and stuff before we can actually start. <laughs> I know, even plugging in the microphone, I just look yeah. over and I'm like, oh my goodness, like, this oh is going to take God, so I have much to effort. Bend over and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that is something to keep in mind. And I think we're, once again, I think this comes from a good place. I think a lot of the yeah. kind of introductory beginner online schedules you see. They're just trying to have you do these like 18-mile long runs, 20-mile long runs, just so you can see it is possible to cover this distance. Mm-hmm. And there is some benefit to that. I, I get it. However, if you really want to kind of make make the right training, so to speak, or really kind of take a bit more of a physiological basis, I think you need to really kind of rethink that metaphor. The other thing, too, is a 20-mile long run for a four-hour marathoner is very, very different than a 20-mile long run for a three-hour marathoner. Mm-hmm. And is very different from one for a six-hour marathoner. Exactly. So yeah. I'll just tell you, too. So first of all, I usually tend to structure my marathons based – or my marathons, my long runs based on time rather than distance. Yeah, me too. For that very reason because it's so variable based on the individual and on what course people are running. For example, we run – at the Kennesaw Mountain Trails, where our GPS is a nightmare, so the distance right. is always kind of way off. Yeah, we all have different distances when we get finished. And just quite honestly, your body knows time on your feet and effort. It doesn't know right. how much mileage you've actually covered. There's not really a magic number you have to hit. So whenever I have runners that kind of have four-plus-hour marathon times, um, I always think it's worth the discussion because those final month or two of long runs are kind of tricky, and the best plan of attack like I said, for that final month or two can be, can vary based on the individual, mm-hmm. you know, based on most research and, and my own experience as a runner and coach, you don't need to hit a certain number of mileage. You don't need to hit that magic 20 mileage. Like I said, uh, you know, a lot of the online training plans kind of have that, that gold standard of, Hey, once you hit this, the gates of heaven will open and <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll be able to now complete a marathon. But I think a lot of that is due to the fact that, a lot of those training plans are written for, for Boston qualifiers and then are extrapolated out, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think that's the proper approach. I think you need to properly adjust you know, how you approach each long run. Research has shown that the physiological benefits of doing a long run beyond about two hours and 40 minutes really starts to get outweighed by the significant increase in injury. Right, right. So that's something – that's why when I have somebody who is training for a marathon and they're kind of in that four-plus-hour range – I really want to talk to him because it may be worth hitting that 18 or 20 mile threshold from a mental perspective. They may really need that. And that's legitimate. Yeah. And it's not something to be dismissed. 
but it is worth a discussion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, the only other thing I'll add to, to to this one before we move on to the next one is just mention that that I had a uh, one more story. I had a, a a guy that I know well, a good friend of mine who was in my wedding um, uh, eleven years ago. And he reached out to me a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, I know somebody who's running the Philadelphia Marathon. Long runs are now up to about 14 miles, and and he's running this number of times a week and blah, 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 blah. Um, do you have any advice to give him? And I said, well, you're seven weeks out at this point, and so so the die is cast to some degree. Right. I, said, I said, but here's a couple of things you can do. And one of the things I recommended um, was that if that runner, if his friend had any runs – that were around about an hour, boost those out to about an hour and 15 to an hour and 20 minutes, um, as opposed to just adding 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes onto the end of his long run. I said, I said that can be beneficial. Um, I said, but, but the biggest endurance gains that someone gets comes between 60 and 90 minutes on a run. Mm-hmm. And so as strange as it sounds, as, as odd as it seems, you actually get a bigger endurance benefit by boosting your 60-minute run to 80 minutes than you will by boosting your two-hour run to two hours and 30 minutes. Right. Um, and so if you're really looking to boost your endurance, which if you're in a marathon training cycle, you should be, um, that's that's a better way to do it. And it's safer. Yeah, I, I've just talked to so many people where their best run in the training cycle is a long run they did six weeks out. Yeah. And then they're, they're, by the time they get to the marathon itself, they're they're almost gassed or, or yeah, done. Yeah, which which also kind of folds back and, and and harkens back to the running the long runs at marathon pace, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, next, all right, is it me? I think so. All right, and this this kind of gets back to our, our previous points. No, the uh, common mistake or common error, whatever you want to call it, number five, attributing injuries to running too far rather than building up too quickly. So we hear this a lot where, you know, I'll talk to somebody who maybe is new to running or tried it for a couple months by themselves, and now I'll tell them kind of what kind of mileage I'm running or how long my long runs are, and they'll say, well, how do your, don't your knees hurt? Aren't you aren't It's you always hurt? knees. It's always knees, yeah. Yeah. And they don't understand that I've been running since I was 14. Um, I've been doing this a while. It's been a very slow build. So, you know, I kind of have a long base and a long kind of background of building slowly and layering on slowly. For the first several years of running, like in high school, is a lot of three, four, five mile easy runs, you know. And a lot of times, I think running is a sport where people can watch a runner and think, "Oh, I can do that. I can run." Right? Mm-hmm. It's not like yeah. a unique um, movement, like like a lot of other sports are, right. where you can't even imagine yourself doing that. Like a gymnast. Like a gym. Yeah, you know, way I'm watching a gymnast and saying I can do that. <laughs> um, so then they almost want to jump right in to you know, the training plan of somebody who's been doing this for many, many years. But that's not really how our sport works. Our sport takes time. Mm-hmm. And when you try to rush, it can lead to injuries. Most injuries come from not giving yourself enough, your body enough time to adapt. As you talked about earlier, giving your joints and your muscles and your ligaments a chance to adjust properly so you can run as much as we run. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't have a whole lot to add to it. I mean, um, research has shown that, that – 
that it's not the people who run the most miles that get injured. It's the people who who tend to spike their training too much. And, yep. we, and, we, and we talked about a specific study related to this several months ago where we talked about how your, your, your training needs to have bumps, not spikes. Yep. Um, and, and I thought it was an important conversation that we had. But um, but but, yeah, it's far it's far more more likely that you're going to get injured if if you add 20 percent, 30 percent, 40 percent to your weekly mileage um, in order to get to 50 miles a week than it is that if you just gradually build up to 50 miles and hold 50 miles for a long period of time. And we see that back to our original point with the long run, too, where people do 17 miles week 10, Mm -hmm. 18 miles week 11, et cetera. And so now they've added on five miles on their long run in five weeks. That's way too quick. I generally like to have the same long run distance at least three weeks to give your body a chance to acclimate. And it's five miles of going into that twilight zone as well. Yeah. Like it's it's five miles beyond the two-hour mark. Right. And right. so, so, so keep in mind what you said just a minute ago about how beyond the two hour mark, that's when you're really getting into the, into the danger zone as far as injury goes. Every, every minute to say nothing of every mile that you add beyond that, you're increasing the, the, the likelihood that you could potentially get injured. Um, and so, so yeah, you're kind of like making a double mistake there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if, if you're just going 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 over the course of, of, of several weeks in a row, you're building too quickly. Um, and you're, you're building too quickly into a zone where you're particularly prone to injury. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, so along the same lines there, along the same lines of, of moving too quickly, um, is, is the reliance on shortcuts. Um, and so I think that, that, that another thing that, that we tend to see in a lot of different athletes that we coach is, is that folks want to take a shortcut, um, that they want to take the right shoes or they want to take the right supplement. Or if they, um, uh, found out that if they do, uh, you know, six days of weightlifting or something else like that, that's, it, it's, it's going to, to, to shortcut the process so they don't have to put in as much time in order to prepare for an endurance race. Um, the fact is that there's pretty much nothing you can do to take a shortcut. Um, there, there, there's almost nothing you can do that's going to enable you to, to avoid the work, the time, the early mornings, the accumulated fatigue. Um, there, there's just not a whole lot of shortcuts. Um, I do feel as if there's – I think this is particularly true when it comes to supplements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a couple of supplements that I have taken that I have found that are very useful for me, um, but but – the times when I've run best in my life, it's not because I was using a particular sub, uh, supplement. It was because I was I was able to train most consistently over time. Right. Um, the golden rule of endurance sports, you probably heard before, is that, that you should no- allow nothing to compromise your consistency, um, whether that's injury um, or anything else. Um, and, and there is no substitute for consistency. Um, just uh, the... Long, gradual process, as John Parker wrote in Once a Runner, of of wearing the rubber off the bottom of your shoes. What do you have, Dad? Not too much, other than to say, unfortunately, the the greatest kind of um, asset a runner has is time. Mm-hmm. Time on your feet for each individual workout, and just time in general of putting in the consistent mileage, of putting in the consistent um, effort, the consistent workouts. And that's not what we want to hear. Right, because we a lot of us are very short on time. You know, we have jobs, you know, families, etc. But that is the the best way to improve. You know, in, in running or in, in our sport. I think it was Bill Gates that once said, "Most people overestimate what they can accomplish in a day and underestimate what they can accomplish in five years." <laughs> that I think that really hits at one of the key kind of misunderstandings or misconceptions a lot of us take into running, because 
sometimes what you do when you're when you're running is you're really kind of training a lot of these smaller kind of cellular level systems and you know they have compounding effects and you make small minor improvements and you a lot of times you don't notice you're improving at the time but then you look back at results three years ago and you say wow i didn't even realize how far i've come because it was such a gradual steady improvement right on for sure so all that is to say there is no shortcut um what it really more than anything else what it takes is time and consistency i used to always tell my high school athletes uh, the secret is there is no secret (laughs) yeah Uh, and and even though i i consider myself to be a more sophisticated coach these days than i might have been then that holds up yeah you know, or, you know, I always make the comparison to index investing. You're never going to hit it big. You're never yeah. going to buy the penny stock that blows up. But you just kind of see gradual improvement um, year after year. Mm-hmm. All right, so next one. Uh, eating whatever you want, believing that if the furnace burns hot enough, you can shovel whatever shit you want into it. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the first four-letter word you've dropped on this. That must be a mistake you feel very strongly about, Patrick. It and. Uh, not so much, but I almost didn't ha- know any other way to say it. You yeah. may have noticed the pause there. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so first of all, I, I don't tend to, like, have a strict diet. I'm not someone who says, all right, you can never have this, you can never have this, you can never have this. But there is a difference between having good habits and bad habits. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't eat cake at your kid's birthday. Your kid's going to have one birthday, eat the daggum cake. But for the most part, I think the mistake a lot of runners make is they think, okay, I've been on this run and now I can go to golden corral and just put them away and be okay. <laughs> because first of all, you might be able to pull that off when you're 25, but that's not going to age well. And that does hold back what you can do. And that does hold back your body's ability to recover right. and to be ready to go for the next workout. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, th- I think one of the most common things that people say to me when they find out I'm a runner is they say, Oh, you can just eat whatever you want. Um, which I always find to be an interesting thing to say, yeah, and, and such a uniquely American thing to say too. I feel like, um, like that is the goal in life is more McDonald's. <laughs> um, and and my response is always no. I actually watch what I eat very very closely. In fact, the more that I'm training, the more closely I watch it. Because then it's more painful, right? Then you pay for it the next yeah, day. Yeah, and and plus, I mean, how many workouts have I had in my life where I am like going to the well and I'm working hard, and then I start beating myself up because I'm like, why am I working so hard? And then just sabotaging the whole thing by eating garbage. Yeah, right. And so, so to me, it's 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 far easier to discipline what I'm eating when I'm working really really hard because because I'm motivated by those hard workouts and by the effort I'm putting in to actually watch what I'm eating. Um, and so, yeah, the idea that you, you can just eat whatever you want. Um, I did appreciate your, your, your reference to John Parker there. Once again, that, that the, that if the furnace is hot enough, anything will burn even big Macs. Yeah. Another line from once a runner there. Um, it may burn, but that fuel will not be efficient. There you go. Very good. Um, all right. Next one, um, is ignoring marginal gains. Um, what is this? Number nine, number eight, number eight. I'm the even guy. You're the odd guy. Yeah. Um, yes, I am the odd guy. Thank you, George. (laughs) Um, ignoring marginal gains because they add up here. Um, I think a lot of times, um, we, we, if we're a runner, we tend to want to focus on running and you just want to run. And I get that. I really do. Um, I've get that very keenly here at age 44. I'm like, I just, I just want to run. Just let me run. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't want to have to do core work, and I don't want to have to go to massage, and I don't want to stretch, and I don't want to want to 
use the cross ball on the bottom of my foot and I don't want, I, mean, I, I don't want to do any of that stuff. I just want to run. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I totally get that point of view and, and, and I completely understand where people come from with this. Um, but you need to do your core work and you need to do your strides um, and you need to, to, to set up your massage therapy appointments um, and your chiropractic appointments. Um, you need to work on your stretching and mobility. You need to pay attention to, to things like your gear um, and the shoes that you're running in and, and the condition of your gear and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, Patrick and I were talking recently on a long run about uh, cyclists and all the various things that cyclists do in order to to um, increase their marginal gains. And even that phrase, marginal gains, was sort of the watchword or the watch phrase uh, of a team called Team Sky, which has now won several tours to France. Um, Patrick is nodding his head knowingly because he's actually heard of Team Sky, um, because even, even though he's not a cycling fan, um, because they've been so dominant in Grand Tours over the course of the past few years. Um, but marginal gains in cycling... You might save a watt or two by putting some ceramic spray on your chain, and you might save another watt or two by uh, by tweaking your fit, and you might save another three or four watts by wearing an aero helmet, and another two or three watts by doing. And and individually, if you say, well, how much are you getting from wearing that skin suit? If somebody says, I'm I'm gaining two watts from it, it doesn't sound like that much, mm-hmm. but but once you put all of these things together. You save 15, 20, 25 watts. 25 watts is the difference between winning the Tour de France and, and finishing off the podium in the Tour de France. Um, it's it's a profound difference. It's a difference between qualifying for Kona and not qualifying for Kona. It's a difference between qualifying for Boston and not qualifying for Boston. Um, that's a profound difference. People train all season for 25 watts. And, and if you pay attention to marginal gains, you can actually get that 25 watts for free without even tra- changing your training. Um, and so... All of these small things add up, and that's the point. Um, I've said before on this podcast, um, and I'll get to meet Meb Kofleski in a couple of weeks at the Philadelphia Marathon Expo, which I'm excited about. It was just announced you know, that, that he and Des Linden are going to be there. How sweet is that? That's a great elite field. I'm fired up by that. Well, they're not running. They're or just going to be there power, speaking. I should say. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. It was enough to actually make me consider buying the VIP package. Consider. <laughs> I, it, it's the VIP package or the Nike Vaporfly. I, yeah, no, it's, uh, exactly. And the VIP package actually costs half what the Vaporfly does. How about that? <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, but but one of the, my favorite quotations uh, from Mev Kofleski is that, that you need to teach te- treat the small things like they're not small things. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to treat them like they're big things because they are. They're small, um, small things with big results, yeah. so to speak. Um, and, and he very for, it's, it's literally the, the second chapter of his book. Um, and he he says he he directly attributes that to the reason why he was able to, to continue to perform at a high level for so long. He qualified for the Olympic marathon team when he was forty one years old, um, and he said the reason why I did that is because I always did the core work, I always paid attention to my diet, I always uh, did the stretching and mobility work, I always did the prehab. Um, he didn't he didn't uh, ignore the small things or treat them as if they were small things. Right, or a bonus yeah. session, if you will. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yep. In endurance sports, you're trying to kind of move forward inch by inch, kind of moment by moment. You know, you told a story about talking to a runner and you said something to the effect of that, you know, if you make this change, it'll improve roughly two to three seconds per mile in your marathon. Yeah. And they said, oh, that's not that big of a deal. And of course, we about peeled over and died. <laughs> like, well, we've <laughs> trained the last 16 weeks for two to three seconds per mile yeah, improvement. Yeah. yeah. Two to three seconds per mile in a marathon is five minutes. Right. Five minutes, I'll take it. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's huge. That's huge. All right, next. Um, all right, my last one. Not taking recovery seriously enough. And this yep. is kind of an an, an offshoot or, or a sub point of, of the last point. 
So it's so easy for runners. So first of all, I know. Let me tell you how, the mistake I make, and because I think a lot of people take the same mindset when you're when you're training for a marathon. When I'm sure you're training for a triathlon, what do you track? You track how many miles you run, mm-hmm. how fast you ran it, what your pace is. You know, maybe what paces you ran for the hard portions and the easy portions, and that's what you track. You track your mileage, how intense your workout was, your workout stats, your heart rate, those kind of things. You track what you did. You track what you did. No one thinks to track how much they slept, right? What they ate. You don't track what you didn't do. You you never track the part you didn't do, and when you're training for for an endurance sport, the the kind of the equation of training, so to speak, is you induce stress on your body so that it can react in a way or adapt in a way that produces physiological benefits that will provide greater tools for you to complete the race quicker or more efficiently. Uh, or, or to continue on for longer, right? You're trying to simply introduce a stimulus that will lead to an adaptive reaction that you know will, will make you better prepared for the race. Half of that is the actual stress itself. The other half is how your body recovers from that stress. It's not just the lifting weights and the breaking down your muscles. Is that they they break down and then recover strongly and rebuild themselves stronger? Right. So you need the rest to. To a recover from that individual workout in a way that's proper and you know allows your body to fully reap the benefits of that workout, and you also need to focus on recovery so you're able to then complete the next workout. Right. So that's another big thing is to focus on recovery. You know, you need to get as much sleep as you can. That's why we have. That's why I always have probably every other piece of research I bring into this <laughs> podcast is about getting more sleep because. That really is half the equation. The other half is all the running and the training and the tempo runs, et cetera. Yeah. It sounds so weird. Um, and I and I get this. And again, you know, here on on, on number nine, this theme that you laid out at the very beginning, um, that they all seem to make sense yeah. why people would make these mistakes. And so yeah, I see I get that it seems really weird for an athlete or for a coach to say to an athlete, or for an athlete to say to themselves, Yeah, you only get stronger during recovery. Wait, what? You don't how does recovery make you stronger? Mm-hmm. But but it goes back to the cycle that you just described. The training actually breaks you down. It makes you weaker to train. It's only when you actually pause and take time and recover and your body is able to rebuild itself stronger that you're going to actually be stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's actually the recovery that leads to the fitness gains and the better performance, not the training. Right. Stress plus rest equals recover or right. equals progress yeah yeah i think it's i think it's based in this kind of no pain no gain mm-hmm. um uh, mentality that we've talked about several times that just doesn't quite apply mm-hmm. um i mean sure there's a there's there's pain in terms of you have to go hard on your hard days to go all the way back to the very first thing we said and so so yeah there's that pain um but the idea that you just have to constantly be going go 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 work hard every day um, that's not quite the way it works. You do need to take some recovery in there to ensure that, that, that you're reaping the benefits of all that pain, that good pain, and that hard work that you're actually doing. Um, I found that, that, that in, people also um, don't take recovery seriously when it comes to like big events. They'll stack up one gigantic event on top of another one, and they don't tend to recover at the end of seasons or after big target A races. Um, and we've talked a lot about that on this podcast before. You not only need to recover physically, you need to recover mentally. You need to recover financially. You need to recover socially. 
Um, you need to recover professionally. Professionally, absolutely. Like all those things are, are are important to recover from after a big race. And so you do need to periodize your races in terms of saying this is a big race. This is an important one. This one's not so important. This is neighborhood five k. Um, you can always tell when I am getting close to a marathon because my yard looks worse and worse about the three <laughs> or four weeks prior. <laughs> nice. And then all of a sudden, the week after, like, wow, he's nice little pristine lawn there. What yeah, happened? Very nice. Very nice. It's been my weekend actually doing yard work and landscaping rather than running around Kennesaw Mountain. The, the, the other time I think that people tend to make this mistake um, or, or where this mistake tends to be most costly is when it comes to tapering. Um, that people say, well, I got two weeks. Let me jam in a whole lot more work in this last two weeks here. Let me, you know, Chicago Marathon's two weeks away. New York City Marathon's two weeks away. Philadelphia Marathon's two weeks. Ironman Chattanooga is two weeks away. Let me, I got I to gotta hurry up and I didn't get to do my 20-mile run or my, my back-to-back 100-milers or whatever it happens to be, and they try and jam a bunch of work in those last two weeks. Die is cast at that point, mm-hmm. right? Um, at that point, you need to be recovering from the work that you've already done in order that you can be your strongest, your best, your most recovered on race day. And even if they don't jam, another kind of flip side of that, too, is let's say someone says, all right, I'm not going to do the 100-mile bike ride. I'm not going to do the 20-mile run. So now, instead of doing my 20-mile run, yes. I'm going to stay up late working. Right. It's like, no, no. Like, we're right. going to take what you used to spend running and spend that sleeping. Or maybe right. getting your work done then so then you can go to bed 30 right. minutes earlier or an hour earlier than you usually can. Right. Yeah, totally. And I'm glad you said that. Yeah, the the – Save that extra time with your family that you're really craving and you're looking forward to because your family had to put as much into your goal as you did. That extra time, I'm excited that you're going to get that. That's what the recovery period is for. That's not what your tapering period is for. Yeah. Um, catching up on your work, like we're talking about recovering professionally, that takes place during the recovery period, not during the tapering period. Yeah. Um, super important. I'm glad you said that. Uh, and then the last one that we'll leave you with is sticking too closely to a plan. Um, and, and what I mean by this is that a lot of folks will, will, will get training plans and they'll download them or they're, they'll be part of a group that, that, that's following a particular training plan or something else like that. Um, and they'll be following the training plan and everything's going well and they're progressing well and they're being safe and they're avoiding all the mistakes that we've talked about up to this point. And then life intervenes. Their mm-hmm. kid gets sick or they take on a new project at work or they get sick or a vacation comes along or something else like that. Um, and something happens and the person is unable to, to follow the plan for a week or 10 days or two weeks or something like that. Then they come back to the group or they come back to the plan, their life gets back to normal and they say, well, I'm just going to jump in right where I just was. Right. Um, meanwhile, everybody else has continued to be training. Everybody else has continued to follow the plan and you just try and jump right back in and, and, and that causes a spike. It causes a difficulty. Um, it's okay to adjust plans um, if if your life intervenes. And this is one of the things that, that I always say is different from having a coach versus following a canned plan. That, that if a coach has a plan for you over the course of three weeks and something happens that forces a change, your coach should be able to make that change for you. Um, and it should be reflected in all of your plans moving forward. Um, likewise, if, if everything's going really, really, really well and your coach wants to add more to your schedule, it works that way too. Um, but I, I, I very much think that a mistake that people tend to make, um, particularly when following structured fitness plans is by, by sticking too closely to them, even when their work stress goes up or their life intervenes or something else like that. What do you have dad? Uh, yeah, there's several kind of offshoots of this. So first vacation, um, and I don't know what your kind of what you tell runners when they, they go on vacation, but 
my philosophy is when you're on vacation, be on vacation. Yeah. If you want to run, if you're going to the beach, for example, and you want to run, I, I would be happy to ride some runs for you, but don't feel like you have to get them in and do not interrupt your family time. Yeah, don't I, make your wife or your husband, you know, just be sitting at the hotel waiting for you while they yeah. have the kids or something. That's yeah. when you're on vacation, be on vacation. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's, I think it's important you say that too. I have found that a lot of people tend to say, well, I'm going on vacation. So I, so I'll have more time to train. Most people actually have less time to train on vacation. Mm-hmm. It's counterintuitive as that sounds, um, because they're, they're in there more time with their family and they're out of their, their normal structured routine during which they already have the time carved out in their day to actually train. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of people will be like, oh, well, I'm going to the beach next week, and so I should be able to get a really good week of training. I'm like, don't try and have your best week of training here. Now, there is such thing as a traincation. My wife and I have done those before, mm-hmm. back, before we, back, back before we had kids. Um, we used to go on traincations. You know, we'd go to Asheville, and we'd ride our bikes and run and that sort of thing. And, and that was the goal, was to, to, to really ride a ton in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where the weather was nicer, um, or something like that, in, in, uh, during a time of the year when we could. Um, and when we needed to, um, so there is such a thing as a traincation, but no, if you're going on vacation, you're going to have less time. Yeah. And another kind of aspect of that is if maybe you're sick or you're injured and you need to miss a week or two, come back slowly yeah. and, 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 or, or more specifically talk to your coach and find out what that injury requires. Mm-hmm. Right. So some injuries you may be able to jump back into a decent amount of mileage, but you can't do any intense miles. Right. So, Back to your point where you need to be adaptive. The, 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 the train, training plan needs to be written in pencil, not in pen, mm-hmm. because you constantly need to kind of you know, reevaluate and say, based on where I am right now, what is the best training for me? You may have improved quicker than you thought. You may not have improved as quick as you thought. You need to constantly kind of reevaluate and decide what is best for me right now, given the training I've put in and given what my, my – kind of metrics are showing me in terms of heart rate, et cetera, and how I feel on specific runs. Right on, right on. I totally agree. Um, well, those are our 10, folks. Let us know if there are ones that you think we let ha- left out. George at ITLcoaching.com, Patrick at ITLcoaching.com, pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. Um, let us know if there's ones that we left out, or by all means, let us know if there's ones that you think we're wrong about, that, that people don't, in fact, make those mistakes, and, and, and we just misread what was going on. Um, Patrick, last words? Uh, no, I enjoyed the uh, conversation, as always. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us once again on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. We'll see you next time. That'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Don't forget to check out our sponsors too. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And, of course, our new sponsor, Blue Pineapple Travel, a full-service travel agency that can book travel anywhere in the world for you. They're on Facebook at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, on Instagram at instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel, or simply at bluepineappletravel.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.